Is this? Good morning or good afternoon to you. Uh, this is Pushing Boundaries, a podcast about pioneering research, breakthrough discoveries, and unconventional ideas. I'm your host, Dr. Thomas R. Verney. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Alice Baker, Senior Lecturer in Sociology, University of London. She has um, written, I believe, three books. The first one is Social Tragedy in 2014, analyzed how collective narratives emerge in different cultural contexts and the role of the media in communicating tragic events of social significance. Her second book examined how lifestyle and wellness influencers construct authority and influence online. She situated this research in discussions around trust, expertise, micro-celebrity, and medical misinformation. She has published several key articles on these topics, as well as a book, Lifestyle Gurus, Constructing Authority and Influence Online, and that was published in 2019. Finally, her most recent book, Wellness Culture, How the Wellness Movement Has Been Used to Empower, Profit, and Misinform, traces the emergence of wellness culture from a fringe countercultural pursuit to a trillion-dollar industry. Dr. Baker's research explores how we connect and communicate online, particularly around issues pertaining to health and wellness. Dr. Baker studies influencer culture and the spread of medical misinformation in the context of COVID-19 and the anti-vaccination movement. Have I got that right so far? Yes. Dr. Baker, I have that right. Okay. Uh, so welcome, uh, Dr. Stephanie Baker. Uh, may I call you Stephanie? Yes, that's that's absolutely fine. Thank you. Um, let's start by discussing how the media communicate tragic events of social significance and the effect this has on our society. Yeah, so I wrote that book a long time ago. That was nearly a decade ago. That's but right. What I uh, was very interested in was this question about why is it that certain events are perceived not just as an individual tragedy, but as what I refer to as a social tragedy, as something that not only affected society en masse, but ought to, right? There was a kind of moral meaning to it. And this was something I'd been interested in in my doctoral research, and I saw it really um, apply to a series of events. And, and so what really struck me was that this could apply to event, an event, say, for example, a football match, which most people wouldn't conceive as, as a tragedy. Mm -hmm. um, and yet it might apply to some wars but not others in some cultural contexts. I also looked at humanitarian issues like Coney 2020 and a series of other events. And so what I was really interested in there was not this essentialist definition of what was a social tragedy, but how did the media together with kind of cultural values um, promote a tragedy? Who were deemed to be tragic victims and, and why? And then I just looked at a series of case studies and, yeah, analysed that. So what what is your definition of tragic? So a tragedy was really looking at an unfortunate um, situation. And so as part of that, it 
should be something that is not expected. So, for example, if you had a young child who was three years of age that died, most people would refer to that as a tragedy. But if somebody lived to 105 and they lived a rich, full life, you wouldn't often say that was a tragedy, right? You you can still express grief. So there had to be this idea of misfortune, um, which I really took. It was not my idea. I, I really adopted Aristotle's understanding of tragedy there. And, and very much about this idea about misfortune, right? And it, and it sort of happens through, through error, but it's, it's more about ignorance and not really someone's, it's not contrived through some kind of wicked deed. And, and I used this genre, this understanding of tragedy again, not on the kind of personal level. I wasn't so interested in that. I was much more interested in about this collective grief that people would feel. Um, as I mentioned, you know, sport, the, the death of, Princess Diana, um, certain humanitarian issues and not others. And so it was really looking at how this genre uh, was comprised through promoting certain people as victims of, of, of um, misfortune and not others. And my argument there, you've got to remember that this was largely written a decade ago, um, it was actually closer to 2010. Social media was really becoming this popular force at the time. So whereas some of the case studies that I was looking at were uh, very much framed by the mainstream media, things like television and radio, the last three or so case studies that I looked at were very much shaped by social media. And that period of about 2010 to 2012 was when social media really shaped our understanding of a series of movements. And this was things like the Arab Spring, we had the, the English riots in 2011. There was the anonymous movement, um, just to name a few. And, and so really what I was trying to understand in the book as well was how the media, and particularly social media, was, was contributing to what we perceived as tragic or not. And, and that's why Coney 2012, that humanitarian initiative, was an interesting case study there too. Mm-hmm. Yes. So talking about the social media, you have also written about, about influences, lifestyle and wellness influencers. Mm-hmm. So who are these people and how did they become so influential? Yeah. So when we think about an influencer and when we use the word influencer today, often what we mean is a social media influencer. And that is somebody who has achieved a degree of fame online. So primarily using social media, but even prior to the mainstream social media platforms that we know of, it could be things such as blogging, right, and other various online platforms. But the real distinction is between a social media influencer and, say, for example, a traditional celebrity who relies on the mainstream media for their fame. So that could be film, television, Mm -hmm. radio. Right. And what's important here is not just the medium through which they achieve a degree of fame, but it's how that medium actually shapes our impression of these people and the ways in which we relate to them. And so just to give you a, a clear example of this, when an influencer achieves fame online, often what they'll describe themselves as is authentic. I'm so authentic. And this adjective is is really important because in describing themselves in this way, what they're actually doing is 
distinguishing themselves from, say, a manufactured celebrity, right? They're, they're indicating that they're more real, they're more genuine. And as a byproduct, you can trust them more, right? It establishes this degree of intimacy. Now, by achieving fame on social media as well, they also seem much more accessible than, say, a mainstream celebrity who is mediated by managers and, and agents and you know, various producers or assistants. And one way in which this impression, because it is an impression of accessibility, is maintained is this idea that we're all sharing the same platform, that I could send somebody who's an influencer a direct message on, on social media, and the chances are they probably wouldn't reply. But what it does is give this impression, again, that they are accessible, that they're within reach, and it limits the distance between the, the influencer who has fame and, say, um, the individual who, who follows them. And the third aspect, which is really important to an influencer, is this idea of autonomy. And autonomy is this impression of being outside of the system. So whereas a traditional celebrity very much relies on not just a certain medium to achieve a degree of fame, but they also do rely on agents, producers, directors to, to make them well-known right, to, to give them a degree of fame, an influencer actually highlights that they're autonomous from this system, right, and, and this idea of being self-made, of being ordinary and just like you. And, again, this is important because it establishes a degree of intimacy but also because many of the influencers that we uh, see online and possibly follow online are actually selling us something. And we know that we're much more likely to trust people who we perceive to be just like us. Um, and so an influencer is actually very uh, profitable if they, they can appear not just authentic and accessible, but also autonomous. Well, that's fantastic. That's the, that's the best explanation I have ever heard and uh, makes a lot of sense. Thank you. That's That was just great. So um, looking then at your work uh, as of today, all your books and papers seem to current uh, seem to address current social problems. So, what, in your opinion, is the most significant problem facing our society today? Wow, that's a big question. That's a big one. Yes, take your time. I mean, I have to first of all preface it by saying that even though I would describe myself as a sociologist, mm -hmm. what I study is a very particular area of sociology. So I do primarily focus on health and wellness communities and both how communities form and communicate you know, in this domain, but also the problems regarding you know, health and wellness. So that would be things like myths and disinformation and conspiracy theories. So I feel as though my research is very much skewed towards those areas and I'm much more cognizant of the issues there than the broader issues. One overarching problem which does relate to my particular field, but I would see it as a, as a much more generic problem, is this issue of trust and, in particular, low institutional trust and I do see this as an issue for many reasons 
not least of which are the kind of byproduct of polarization and skepticism and doubt and division that that the erosion of trust basically fuels. And I think particularly when we look at developments like AI, which is not something that I study, but obviously is very important and will be increasingly important, this low institutional trust will increasingly become an issue, especially as mis- and disinformation scales as a result of, of AI. So I think low trust would be something essential because even when I go back to the research that I conducted over a decade ago, you really can look at trust as the glue that not only binds individuals together but binds a society together or can tear people apart. That would be one, absolutely. Um, I think equality is another huge issue and I don't feel as though I study it closely enough at a general level to really feel as though I have any good solutions to the problem. I can only understand it in relation to my own work in a very particular domain. But I do think the increasing inequality that we see and will continue to see is a huge problem, especially when people feel uh, disenfranchised. Right, right. Um, you wrote another paper last year with Dr. Walsh, uh, which was called A Mother's Intuition. It's real, and we have to believe in it. How the maternal is used to promote vaccine vaccine refusal on Instagram. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So we wrote a paper in which we were analysing a series of anti-vaccine advocates, very prominent anti-vaccine advocates. And we were really looking at the strategies they use to encourage vaccine refusal. And we identified three. Uh, and this was after looking at all of their social media profiles, cross-platforms, so this would be Facebook, Instagram, uh, and then settling finally mostly on Instagram. But we identified three very common strategies they would use to target mothers and, and encourage them not to vaccinate their children. So the first one was this, this trope of the protective mother, and it was this idea that the mother's role in life really was to protect their child first and foremost. And interestingly, you would assume that that would actually be the role of, of a mother or father or whoever the caregivers are. But it was very much in the context of the anti-vaccination movement and these influences in particular framed as a type of maternal duty. Um, the other one was very much this idea about the intuitive mother. And here it was not just this idea that we must trust mothers or that, that we must trust a mother's intuition. It was this idea that a mother's intuition is opposed to this idea about medical expertise or scientific expertise, which was quite interesting because I would say that the biggest advocate of this position was actually Andrew Wakefield, who was you know, a practicing medical doctor. But the way in which he really built an audience and built a loyal online following was very much through aligning himself 
with mothers and with maternal intuition and highlighting again that a mother's intuition was always right, which was very dangerous because we know that many mothers, not just vaccine-hesitant mothers, are nervous about drugs or vaccines or any medication that they'll often give to their children. And so it's not that they totally, as influencers, have to refute uh, medical facts. They just have to feed into people's worries and insecurities or intuitions as they frame it to to build a sense of of trust uh, and and galvanise the the anti-vaccination movement. And the third one that we identified was this idea of the doting mother. And this was this idea about the mother as being playful and caring and loving and, again, really knowing what's best for her child. And what was interesting very much in these posts is that often you couldn't even identify upon first glance that they were anti-vaccine posts. Often it would be an influencer who was actually an anti-vaccine advocate posing with their child, and it would just look like a generic mother or daughter going out, you know, for a play date together or celebrating a birthday, and it wasn't unless you knew to look in the hashtags, often buried within the hashtags, that you would see acronyms for anti-vaccine causes. So that was really what we identified there again, these three common tropes that these prominent anti-vaccine influencers use to, to build a loyal following and really encourage vaccine refusal. And the impetus there was actually... Andrew Wakefield, because what he did so convincingly was not only align himself with with mothers and, again, maternal intuition, but he would actually share posts which he alleged were from mothers who had lost children to vaccine injury and regretted it. And so a lot of what he shared, as well as others, were first-hand accounts in the form of letters or sometimes videos, but mostly letters, where mothers would address either current mothers or expectant moms, and they would literally write, dear expectant mom, and they would be expressing not only the importance of not vaccinating their children, but it would be framed very much through this lens of regret. I I trusted the doctors. I vaccinated my child. Now they're either injured or dead, and I regret it. And if only I can impart this knowledge onto you so you don't make the same mistake. And, of course, on the one hand, that's obviously very compelling for people. They see a handwritten letter, which, you know, it it was not uncommon. He was posting this sort of content several times a month. But the, the other issue is how can you verify this? Right. Whereas a medical fact needs to be backed up by studies and, and, and legitimate studies, and it can be critiqued and replicated. A handwritten letter, which is so moving and so poignant, is more than a story. It's it's handwritten, it comes across from the heart, was very moving but very difficult to verify. And these were the sorts of techniques and tactics that that these anti-vaccine influencers would use to encourage vaccine refusal. So that's what we really trace there. So this vaccine, vaccine refusal, is it limited to COVID-19 or is it spreading to all the other vaccines that we have been using for the last 100 years? Yeah, it does. 
surpass just the limited pandemic period. We, for that study, were exploring during the pandemic how these anti-vaccine advocates were basically promoting vaccine refusal. But you see it is a much larger issue. For example, the MMR has been targeted quite significantly. And even now what we're seeing increasingly are the ways in which it's moving beyond just COVID vaccines to other vaccines in general, right? right so right. it's a much bigger issue, but for that particular study, we were focusing on, on the types of marketing during the pandemic. But a lot of this wasn't actually, even though it was messaging that was produced during the pandemic, a lot of this wasn't limited to COVID vaccines. That was the interesting thing. Mm-hmm. It was vaccines in general. Right. And right. again, communicated in a very clever way. So is there a very real possibility that we'll have all these diseases that we have eradicated, like polio and mumps and all these other things, return? I think it's a serious issue. Uh, And I know that a lot of people are concerned about this because a lot of the anti-vaccine advocates have gained a very significant following during the pandemic when many people have felt distrustful of scientific expertise and the establishment and the government. And I think that trust doesn't doesn't diminish into no trust. It, it turns into trust to alternative figures. And increasingly these people who are, are skeptical of official solutions turn towards the these influences. Yeah. So I, well yes, well as you probably know, I think his name is Robert Kennedy Jr is running for president in the United States, and he's an outspoken anti-vaccinator. Yeah. We actually just published a paper on him. It came out a few days ago. Oh, yeah. This was with some colleagues, uh, Chris Rojek and and Eugene McLaughlin, and we'd been following him and Joseph McCullough for a year and a half during the pandemic as well. What's quite interesting about these figures is despite having this common message about vaccine refusal and and scepticism towards vaccines, the ways in which they target groups are quite particular. And in this sense, they are really truly influencers because they self-brand in quite distinct ways. And actually their target audience is quite specific. So Kennedy's an interesting figure because he obviously had a very respected career as, as a lawyer and environmental activist and initially much of his activism regarding vaccines was about thimerosal Mm -hmm. but during the pandemic he shifted quite aggressively towards this idea about medical racism and a lot of attention was paid towards some comments where he described mandates and covid measures to the holocaust and the types of experiences, and, and he received a huge amount of criticism for that and and then started denying he was making those analogies. But actually explicitly his documentary, Medical Racism, described these vaccine measures as what he calls the new apartheid. So it is quite interesting to study the influences in this space and, and look really at how they're not trying to reach the same group of people Part of what I think makes them so successful is they not only self-brand in a very distinct way, 
but the followers that they're trying to appeal to are actually quite distinct as well. Very interesting. So in terms of your own life, uh, was there anything in your own background that you think contributed to, to your interest in this subject? It's a really good question. I haven't... Um, there's been, regarding the vaccine issue, it's not as though I've had a negative experience that has led to that. I just study health and wellness and, and see it as a very important social issue and a timely issue. I used to be a yoga practitioner and actually a yoga teacher, and so I think part of the interest that I have had about health and wellness in general actually came not just from a critical standpoint but as somebody who was highly attracted to this space. Uh, and so initially, actually, before I even studied health and medical myths and disinformation and conspiracy theories, a lot of what I studied was how health and wellness was communicated online and it was much more from a kind of curious point of view. Uh, obviously, during the pandemic, the impetus, I think, for studying health and wellness more specifically in the context of myths and disinformation isn't from some personal issue that that developed this conviction. It's more that I really saw it as a serious problem. Uh, my colleague Chris Rojek and I, actually back in 2015, I would say that the biggest reason that I landed on studying this space was because of the Bell Gibson scandal. I'm not sure if you know her. No, no, tell me about was, it. Yeah, so she was this influencer who... She was Australian, well, she is Australian, and back in about 2012, 13, 14, she built this online following on Instagram primarily where she depicted herself as a cancer survivor who, against all odds, survived this very rare form of brain cancer. And she suggested that the way in which she had survived was very much through just this innocuous health and wellness advice. So living a plant-based diet, giving up caffeine, giving up meat and dairy, and it was those sorts of things. So nothing revolutionary, nothing that's significant, but actually what she did was post all of her journey online on Instagram, and she built this online following, which was quite big at the time. So it was about 200,000 followers, which now isn't the largest, but back in 2014 and 15 was a very large following. And her following was so large that she was developing an app with Apple and she also uh, had a book with Penguin Books and it was a cookbook called The Whole Pantry. And in the foreword, she talks about how she used to take chemotherapy and it made her feel really sick, so she gave it up. And in place of chemotherapy, she adopted this plant-based diet and lived this so-called healthy life. And she was really rewarded. She didn't just achieve a degree of legitimacy through this book deal with Penguin, through this app she was developing with Apple, but she was winning awards from large media agencies and magazines and, and people were saying, you know, you're so courageous. And then in 2015 it all came crashing down because she was exposed as a fraud. And, in fact, she never had cancer. <laughs> and so... Chris and I were really interested in this question. So much of the media focus at the time focused on her as an individual 
And how is it that this individual did this? What's the psychology? Was she just evil or was it mental illness? And so many of the headlines focused on that. And we actually thought that wasn't the interesting question. We thought the much more interesting question was how could an individual who had no expertise, no medical training, develop a degree of influence and authority that rivaled doctors and and scientists and and to achieve this high degree of trust and loyalty from her followers. And so that became really uh, the basis of of our article on Bell Gibson and also our book Lifestyle Gurus where we we were inspired very much by this case and then went on to write a book about these so-called lifestyle gurus. And I would see that point in 2015 really as the, the moment that I became more interested in myths and disinformation. And then during the pandemic, as I said, it, it was ignited because it was such a serious problem. Prior to that, I had been interested in digital communities and I'd been covering health but really it was that moment back in 2015 it wasn't a personal moment but it was something that both Chris and I observed and we thought was a serious problem worthy of scholarly attention so these um influencers and people who put out misinformation well it obviously seems to satisfy some kind of a need uh, by the public. Otherwise, there would be no nobody who would tune into these people, right? So as a sociologist, what do you think is happening to our society that people are turning to, obviously, you know, non-scientists for scientific information? Mm. I think you're spot on. And it's something we observed as well. So as sociologists, we're very interested in society and what are the social conditions and the cultural and political and economic conditions that enable individuals like this to flourish. Exactly. We identified a couple of things. I would say the primary factor that we observed was what we called a low-trust society. And what we meant by that was not the complete absence of trust from society, but it was rather low institutional trust. And what we argue is when there's low institutional trust, that this trust then finds other conduits to rely on, other figures, other individuals. And so when we trace these lifestyle and wellness influences, we noticed that many of the the sort of discourses around these individuals were about the government being corrupt or um, pharmaceutical corporations polluting with governments and politicians for profit. And so it was this, in the context of, of health and wellness, it was really about distrust in government, the medical establishment, scientific experts, politics. So we we actually called our, our last chapter Low Trust Society because we saw this as a larger problem. And what was interesting is that we actually wrote that book. Um, it was 2015, 16, 17, 18. It was a lot of the research and, and it was published at the end of 2019, which was before the pandemic. And so we obviously had no idea what was to come. 
but we'd identified this already as, as really one of the major issues. The other factor that I think gives these influencers so much authority over people's lives is both this idea of secularization and living in a, in a type of post-secular society where even if people do feel as though they're religious or spiritual, a lot of the institutions and kind of moral frameworks that dictated how people ought to live have eroded over time. And so what we end up in is this society where many people feel lost or what Anthony Giddens called uh, ontological insecurity, where people don't know how to live. They don't know what to do. They're, they're surrounded with different options. And so it's very natural that they look for guides to tell them how best to live. And this affects many domains. It's not just health and wellness. Many of the figures who spoke about you know, this risk society even looked at romantic relationships and you know, the sorts of anxieties and, and uncertainties that characterise many people's quest for a romantic relationship where they're always unsure, is this the one, should I be dating this person or should I settle down with this person and all this confusion and this applies to so many people's lives and, and, and all areas of life really, whether it's health and wellness, work, relationships, where to live, how to live, who to live with. And so I think many people don't have these types of moral frameworks to guide them that they did in the past. And so they look for these self-help gurus or influencers or lifestyle influencers who seem to have it all, seem to have knowledge on how best to live in a post-secular society. And, and, that's, and that's where I think we are. And... Uh... It's it's an interesting place, but not a very good place. I think the danger is not that everyone's out to it's not that everyone is out to basically you know corrupt people, but it's that there's no regulation as well, right? When you look at the people who you know, the, the advice they give might be really dangerous, but there's no type of overarching board or authority who, mm -hmm. who can really regulate this space. And so you can have people giving very well-intentioned advice. And, you know, one of the things I'm struck by is even if you're on social media now, you'll see a lot of parenting advice or relationship advice. And it's not that it's all bad. Some of it might be really useful to people. But especially in the context of health, if people do actually share dangerous or harmful advice, there are very little regulatory structures in place that these people are held accountable. And, and so I think there's a real danger with the context that we're in where, you know, anyone has the, the ability to develop a degree of influence and authority online and it's not that they have to have a degree of training or some kind of regulatory structure that will place checks on them. Sorry, hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yes, for a moment I lost you. Yes. No so in terms of your own life, um, can you think of three people who have 
made a substantial difference in your life, influenced you in a major way, for better or worse? That's a big question. I guess that's the difference between a psychiatrist and a sociologist. Well, I can, but the the <laughs> if I seem that I'm torn, which I am, is because part of me doesn't want to disclose people very personal to me on a public. Okay. Uh, well, can can you uh, withhold their names and just say what they did for you? Okay. I would say without disclosing yes names or or identities, Identity. I would say uh, my family have given me, I think, uh, a kind of curiosity for learning and a love of learning in very different mm -hmm. ways. My dad is a doctor. My mom has always been involved in the arts and used to own a theatre, and so I think I had a rich home environment that that would have shaped my interest and curiosity in a lot of these issues. I think my... I've had a lot of mentors who I feel as though I've been guided by and, and shaped by and who have been extremely generous. And I would say my PhD supervisors together with the markers the examiners of my phd so it's four people in total were so generous with their time and and opened up doors in various ways that have enabled me to be in the position i am now where i have tenure and 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 i think that's not all about the individual i think often often your advisors and mentors help you so that would be my second even though i realize it's not one person it's a group and third this is tricky do they have to be alive or no be? no they can be yeah. dead i would say the early on in particular this might seem a little strange, but there was a, a theorist, George Herbert Mead, who wrote about how we interact and how we develop a sense of consciousness and a sense of identity. And I was exposed to his work when I was a third-year student back at the University of Sydney. And I would credit him because I, I think as a third-year student who wasn't even sure that I wanted to pursue sociology at a postgraduate level. I was so inspired by his work. Just, it just made me really curious and it made sense and I would credit him very much. Even though he actually didn't publish a book, the books that are posthumously attributed to him are really actually a collection of lecture notes. I found his work so inspiring and actually when I was pursuing a PhD later on, I went to the University of Chicago to go and look at his original his original work there, which is all locked up in the library. So, yes, I would put him as my third. You mentioned, you mentioned the fact that your parents are still alive? Yes. 
do they do they understand and support your work? Yeah, they do. I mean, I'm not even sure that they read it, to be honest. I don't send them my work. I think in a way it's quite healthy because even though I think they have been so supportive of my studies and are very you continue to really encourage me and support me in what I do, I actually think having a life outside of academia is really important as well and keeps you grounded and keeps you, it just gives, I mean, it's not that it gives you a sense of balance because I think at times life always feels imbalanced, but I think it it provides a demarcation. And so, yeah, to be honest, I don't even think they have read my books or my articles, but they're very supportive and they're very encouraging and, and very loving. And I think that's all you can ask for from parents. Yes, yeah. yeah, absolutely right. Are you a parent? I am a parent. And you have how many children? I have three. Three children. Three children. And how old are they? They are seven, four, and two. I see. All right. And what's next for you in terms of any, are you working on any books? I am working on a book, which is a, it's related to what I do, although it might, it might seem otherwise. So it's actually on cults and, and it's co-authored. So it's not, it's not just my book. It's going to be written with, Uh, Eugene McLaughlin and Chris Rojek, who I wrote Lifestyle Gurus with. And uh, the book is on cults, but it's not so much just about traditional cults or religious cults. Again, we're all sociologists. Eugene's a criminologist. And we're much more interested in these types of cultic dynamics, which characterize a lot of the online groups that we increasingly see online. And So what we're looking at will be you know, online radicalization and and I think apply to a series of examples. So things such as you know, the cult of the entrepreneur or people like Andrew Tate and a series of other people and you know anti-vaccination cults and and QAnon and a whole lot of different groups. And so. That's what we're currently looking at, which I think is broad, but I think, uh, yeah, it's interesting and it's timely and, yeah, they're great to collaborate with. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you. That That is, well, one one more question. Do you, do you have a moment for one more question? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, lastly, um, what's the most important thing you have learned so far in your life? Wow. That's a big question. Do you know what I would say? This is what comes to mind straight away. Yes. yes. I would say the importance of kindness. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that I think I have learned through my job necessarily. It's just that if you ask me in, in general, I think the importance of kindness, it's so often when you see 
you know, the problems that have arisen or, or the, the beauty in life, I think it can be, can be traced back to, to kindness or the lack thereof. And I think that's one of the things that's always, always at the forefront of my mind, especially raising three young children. Right. Well, thank you. I shall let you go at that point. Let me just say thanks again. That was fantastic, enjoyable, incredibly instructive. Uh, I look forward to uh, reading the transcript because you said so many really, really important things. And I wish you a lot of luck in your all your future enterprises. I just want to say that in two weeks, my guest will be Wayne Altman. Wayne suffers from tinnitus and was looking for relief when he noticed that the only way he could stop experiencing extreme ringing in both ears was when he listened to binaural beats. I don't know what binaural beats are, but I'm sure he will tell us, or specific tones of music. And that's when he realized he could create something for people not limited to this one condition, but to share the healing and beneficial effects of this technology to everyone who wants it. I hope you will join me then. And Stephanie, thanks again and good luck. Thank you. Bye-bye.